So the crowd is the the cats are <coughs> together. The sheep are flocking. So tomorrow, I mean, there's already about eight or ten people who are at least, I think, who are already there. And uh, at least six or eight more driving who are going to be arriving there early in the morning. So we need to pray for that trip to D.C. And um, I sent out another... Where are we? Sent out another email uh, tonight with just some last-minute things to pay attention to. We need to continue to pray for um, Allen and Tuts Westfall. Uh, Tuts is more comfortable today than she had been for three or four days, but uh, be a um, just be a while in healing. So we need to. Uh, continue to pray pray for them and all the things that need to get done there and also some of you may not have caught this but uh, Brad Stebbins who is Kathy Yeaman's son-in-law who is also a deacon at National Capital Bible Church and um, was discovered he had cancer Monday and they operated almost immediately so he is doing well. He's in recovery and um, at home now. So be two weeks before they get that t- uh, tight. So um, need to get that, that before they'll know what what's going to happen there. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Sandy, I was looking for you earlier. I will forget this afterward. There is a letter on the conference table I would like to three Xerox copies made up. So I'll talk to you about it later, but if I don't make a comment now, I'll get distracted with something later. All right, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege to come together tonight to think about your word, to think about you, to reflect upon just who you are. It's beyond our comprehension, except much of what you have revealed is to make yourself comprehensible to us in a finite way. Father, we pray that as we handle your word and as we think about your word, and we think especially about this topic of worship, that you may challenge us and help us to, to think a little more deeply, a little more profoundly about what it means to worship you, to give you reverence and respect and to adore you and all that that entails and that uh, so often we get into certain modes of operation and uh, stay within that little comfort zone and not go beyond it and yet When we look at the scripture, there is so much more that is uh, as part of this concept of worship that should be part of our spiritual life. We pray that we may be responsive to that and that God the Holy Spirit will open your word to us that we may understand this a little more fully. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're working our way through this section in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and in 2 Samuel 6, 9 through 12, where David is taking the ark and he's bringing it into Jerusalem. And, of course, in the first episode, they did a lot that was wrong. Their goal, their intent, their desire was to to glorify God. But they did it the wrong way. A right thing 
or a wrong thing, excuse me, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And there were serious consequences to that. Later on, there will be a king in the southern kingdom named Uzziah, and he gets a little impatient. He's one of the best, better kings, if not one of the best kings in the southern kingdom. And he gets impatient, and he, he wants to, he ta virtually takes over responsibility of the priest. As a result, God gives him, disciplines him, and he gets leprosy. And he becomes, therefore, ritually unclean. He can't go in the temple. This is all to reinforce the idea that there is, there is right ways to worship God and wrong ways to worship God. And how we feel really isn't the point. We have to conform to the righteousness of God. And so we've been studying this, and we need to probe this concept of understanding worship a little more. We're in, in our study of Second Samuel. We're in the... Uh, first division, the first 10 chapters, and we're down to 2 Samuel 6, where God becomes enthroned in Jerusalem. Now, one of the things we ought to think about this is why this is important. Because God is, God's relationship to Israel, as set forth in the Mosaic Covenant, is that God is the true king of Israel. That's why it's called the theocracy, the rule of God. God is the true king of Israel. And even when there's a human king, which is envisioned under the Mosaic law, even when there's a human king and it's David, that human king is really under the authority of God. Saul didn't catch that concept. He thought he was the one who was the true king of, of Israel and was disobedient to God. But David understands his position and his responsibility that he is under the authority of the sovereign king over Israel, and that's God. And so he wants God to have his place in Israel. He understands the significance of putting God at the center of the community life of Israel and for God to be truly worshipped there and he has a vision that is going to transform the worship of Israel as it was set forth uh, on Mount Sinai where it was focused on the tabernacle and to expand that and to create a more glorious setting for the worship of God uh, in the temple. Now God is not going to allow David to build the temple. Solomon will build that temple but David is setting the stage for that. And a lot that happens that is described, this is why we're going over to First, First Chronicles 15 and 16, is that we see David's organization uh, for worship there. And we can learn from this. And there's a progress that takes place. And, and as I'm getting into this, one of the things that has, has hit me is I, I was talking to somebody today and said, well, I think I've opened a can of worms. And that is that I really didn't intend when I made this shift to take the time to drill down into a study on worship. But you can't avoid that. It's important for a couple of reasons. It's important because this is a major topic in Scripture. And secondly, people don't understand it very well. And third, we live in a generation that has shifted Worship from what it has been in many denominations and groups for, for hundreds of years to something different, and they've sort of cut the anchor to the past. Now, their reasoning behind that is because they found something wanting. They, they felt like they were, their worship was empty. It wasn't as significant. It, wasn't, uh, it didn't... Uh, do anything for them emotionally. Now, that's part of the shift that occurs under a postmodern worldview, the shift to where uh, reason and experience are, are minimized and emotion is elevated and emphasized. And so that always impacts the church. You go through church history from the early years uh, when it is expanding before uh, it is legalized under Constantine, 
uh, it, it, the problems that they had are problems that reflected the culture that, that the people came from and the ideas, especially the Greek ideas that, that influenced the, the church, especially Neoplatonism. And so you can see this all the way through church history is that the, the church tends to reflect the culture out of which the people come because that's the world baggage that they bring with them into the church. So we need to think about this. And, and over history, there have been a lot of changes. You have the litur liturgy in the liturgical form of worship that developed in the Roman Catholic Church, a lot of which is grounded in the early apostolic tradition that is pre-Roman Catholic. It's part of what was called the Old Catholic Church. Catholic's just a word that means universal. And so you don't really have a Roman church until you get to about 600. Different historians will, will identify different time periods, but that's, that's generally the time that, that you see more of a Roman uh, authority in the church coming from the Bishop of Rome, who is called Leo the Great. So it it's liturgical in that, that it's in a society where, to some degree, there's a lot of illiteracy. They don't have Barbara Bush coming along promoting literacy programs. And so people, are, don't, and, and a lot of people don't have the scripture that uh, they're, they're poor, they're, uh, many are slaves, Many are in the lower socioeconomic strata in Rome. There are a lot that aren't, but there were a lot that were, and they don't have the resources to go do what you've done and buy a Bible or 15. You know, I won't have a show of hands, but how many people have more than 15 Bibles in their house? How many people have more than 10 Bibles in their house? I mean, this is true for most Americans uh, that, are, that are involved in church, not those that aren't, but those who are really involved in church probably have 10, 15 Bibles in their house. But it, at that time in the early church, uh, there were many people who, did, who may have had a scroll of one or two books if they had that. Uh, many of them didn't. And so um, as a result of that, there, there is the need to recite creeds. Now, if you come from a Baptist background, um, some of you may not realize it. I know a lot of you, uh, came, a lot of us came out of Baraka Church, but Baraka Church had a strong uh, background in two traditions. One was Baptist, uh, because Pastor Thien was ordained as a as a conservative Baptist, his fa father-in-law, that uh, who was pastored a church in Tucson, Arizona, where he uh, where he went to uh, University of Arizona uh, as a as an undergraduate. That his father-in-law was one of the three men who founded the conservative Baptist denomination, and he was ordained as a conservative Baptist. A lot of people don't know that. So and and so a lot of the structures and the format of what, they, what was done in that church on Sunday morning was heavily influenced by Southern Baptist liturgy. Now, a lot of people say, well, how do you say Southern Baptists have a liturgy? Well, a liturgy or a Sunday morning ritual for what would be called low church or Baptist denomination is what? Two hymns, offering, and a sermon. That's the ritual every Sunday. You have announcements, prayer, two hymns, offering, sermon, closing prayer. It may not be the kind of ritual that you see in a high church, but think about it. It's the same order. It's the same structure every single Sunday. I'll tell you a story. Today we live in a world where, and I think it's right and wrong, and I go back and forth on this, that one of the problems with doing it the same way every Sunday is it becomes stayed. It becomes so regular and such a, a, uh, a habit that people come in and they go through the motions and their mind is somewhere else. They're not thinking about this incomprehensible, holy, personal, infinite God that has reach down to these minuscule creatures that he created in his image 
and has entered into their history in order to redeem each and every one of them. That, that, that incomprehensibility, the infinity of God is, is something that, that we cannot grasp. And we come on Sunday morning and it's such a routine that we slip into what we do without thinking about it and all of a sudden God really isn't at the center of what we're doing on Sunday morning. Now, because that is so true, it's true for all of us, that what you see, the, how you see, you, we always see the pendulum swing from one thing to another. What you've seen in the last 40 years is this sort of reaction, let's try to do something different every Sunday. And so you'll go to some churches and you don't know what to expect that Sunday because there may be praise dancers or they may be some d- drama or a skit. There may be this or there may be that. And what they're trying to do, which is, I think, to some degree legitimate, is to make it fresh, make our worship of God somehow fresh and significant every Sunday. There's a problem with that. And I'll just, from my own experience, I remember uh, when I went through various years at seminary, I went to different churches. I was... Uh, part of, uh, I never went to an Episcopal or more high church, but I went to some that were much more formal. I went to some that were much more informal. I went to a couple of really small startup churches uh, that that uh, just met in somebody's home. I had a lot of different different experiences, and I because I'd been away at college and I had been pastor and then seminary and had been pastoring in different churches. It had been 14 years before I went back to Baraka Church when I was uh, in 1988. They had a pastor's conference, and I went back to Baraka Church, and I sat down in, in where I had sat as a kid growing up. It smelled the same. It looked the same. Everything was the same, and there was a level of comfort and stability. You had the same voice in the pulpit. There was a, because everything was the same, it was, it felt stable. And I think that a lot of people come along and say, okay, we need something new and fresh every week. Forget the fact that in a world in which we live that changes so very much, every single day where there is so much flux and chaos and uncertainty that to go and sit in the same pew every Sunday, hear the same voice, and go through the same things, whether it's high church ritual and liturgy or whether it's two or three hymns and a, uh, the offering and a sermon, it provides just what you do provides a sense of certainty and stability that there's something that doesn't change and something that I can I can rely on and that is really important and that should also be factored in when we talk about worship you don't see in the old testament a lot of this kind of thinking that we see in our contemporary world where Oh, we just keep doing the same thing and saying the same thing every Yom Kippur. Let's do something different. We keep saying the same story and going through the same Haggadah every single Passover. Let's just, let's change it up a little bit. Now, in the modern world you do, you can get online and you can you can buy something called the 30-minute Seder and you can rip right through it very quickly and not take the time to go through the ritual the the ritual questions and answers that are part of it and a lot of people do that because it doesn't mean anything to them and see that's the other side of the spectrum we do the same thing over and over again we lose its reality now that's not <clears throat> the flaw that comes up is that pastors and church leaders think that it's their job to change that it's not a problem of the regularity and the order. See, that's what they say. We keep doing the same thing every week. People get bored. They think it's their job to change that, to prevent people from getting bored or in a rut. The problem with that is that what they do to change it becomes manipulation. 
and it, it gets away from the scripture and it's we, we need to set the tone we need to set the mood we need to def- and then they defi- have defined worship in terms of a certain a mental attitude a certain framework uh, that you just feel sort of in this quasi mystical kind of stance oh I've just been lifted up and they dim the music and they paint the walls black and they put candles up and they do all of these things and it's artificial and it is all designed to create this mood to instead of recognizing that the problem is in between the ears of the people in the congregation they're not thinking about what they're doing on Sunday morning it's been a routine it's a habit and we're all that way. We go through our Sunday morning routine. We have our little schedules. It's 8 o'clock. I need to eat breakfast. It's 8.30. I have to get in the shower. And we go through the whole thing, and we're, we're not really bringing our, our focus on the fact that what we are doing and what we're supposed to be doing in a corporate worship service is rejoicing, celebrating, being reminded of the fact that this incredibly ineffable God has lowered himself to communicate to us and to save us and to bring us into eternal fellowship with him and we should be always rejoicing about that. We're, it's, it's our problem because we let all the little details of life all the problems, all the people issues, all of the things with getting our kids ready to go and everything else that that we let that get in the way of our thought and of our focus. And in America especially, we've got worship down to, okay, it's an hour, hour and 15 minutes maybe, but if you're going to do something for five hours, I'm out of there. But you go to many places in the world and you go to some denominations where they still have, even though it's high church and it's liturgical and they quote a lot of creeds and there may not be a genuine spiritual life there, they do recognize that they are worshiping the universe, the, the incredibly infinite or the incredible infinite God of the universe who created and redeemed them and he's worthy of praise, which means he's, it's not on a time clock and we're here for five hours. And it it's, has a significance and a weight to it that is at least historically there because they realize how great God is. The problem is that becomes a rut too. And you just go, they go through that and they don't really understand what's going on. And I've gone back and thought about things because I mentioned a couple of times I've gone to, well, I've gone to one Episcopal funeral a couple of weeks ago. I watched the Barbara Bush ceremony at at St. Michael's uh, Episcopal the other day and made me think about this. When we recite the creed, there's nothing wrong with reciting creeds. Baptists don't like it because they say, we're non-creedal people. We believe the Bible. That'd be great if people in the pews actually knew the Bible You need to have creeds in order to break it down and synthesize the basic doctrines that are in the Bible. So when people recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian Creed, it's just a basic summary of what our basic beliefs are. And when they recite those over and over again, and it's always the same thing. In my first church, it had this this emphasis. And every Sunday morning, it was the Apostles' Creed and then the Lord's Prayer and then uh, we sang uh, the, the same hymn, went in that order every week. But it just it gets stale, and you just go through it, and people are never taught. So there's a way to find um, some some ways to teach people this. I remember the first time I went to a a more liturgical Presbyterian worship service on a Sunday morning after I had been through seminary, and it was. Grace, uh, what is that? Grace Presbyterian down here on the Beltway. I knew some people who went there and they invited me to church and I went over there. And I thought, wow, this is so great. They recited creeds, they did this and they did that. But I had had a uh, heavy impact, heavy study 
uh, curriculum on church history when I was in, even in my master's program. And all of this made great sense because I had brought all that church history to bear and it was significant. But the people who were sitting with me had no clue about any of this. They didn't know where the uh, Nicene Creed came from. They didn't understand the fights and the theological division that was behind it and and the the, the important theological nuances of every phrase. And so for them, it was just something that they recited every Sunday, and, you know, they could think about whatever it was they were going to do on Monday and just recite it uh, without thinking about it. So those are just some things that we have to think about, and so I'm decided that we need to take a little time to get into thinking about worship again. So we talked about First Corinthians, I mean, First Chronicles, I keep saying that, First Chronicles 15, and the structure there that uh, David failed to bring the ark in the first time because he did it the wrong way. And so he had to go back to the scripture for correction, Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the word of God is breathed out, it's breathed, scripture is breathed out by God so that we can be taught, we can be reproved, God's going to say, you're wrong, that doesn't fly with the snowflake generation today. A lot of people don't like to be told by the, script, by the pastor, by Scripture, that their thinking's wrong. They want to go to a church that's going to affirm everything that they believe and everything they do because they, they, uh, they haven't thought very well. They have, they're pretty superficial in their thinking. We have a whole culture like that. But Scripture is to reprove us, to tell us you're wrong, and then to correct us and say, this is the wrong way, this is the right way, so that we can be instructed in righteousness and grow and mature spiritually so we can serve the Lord. Well, this is what David does. He goes back to the scriptures for correction, and then he realizes his failings, and he makes adjustments. He, as part of that, he organizes the Levites for the movement of the ark. He realizes they have to carry it by its poles, that, uh, that nobody can, can uh, uh, touch it. Uh, it's carried uh, by Levites, and, by, uh, and then they're, they're, they take it to their, to their location. So he prepares them also spiritually as well as organizationally. And then he goes a step further. And what we see here is that as you go through the progress of Scripture, that there's progress in understanding worship. You, you have the singing of hymns, before, at the time of the Exodus with Miriam's song of victory uh, after uh, Deborah and Barak defeat Sisera, uh, the Canaanite, uh, the king of Hatzor, uh, you have in Judges chapter 5, you have uh, Deborah's song of praise. So there's, there, th these hymns are already present, but David is going to take it to a new level. And this is then going to be part of recognizing the significance, the central role of God in the temple. God is dwelling in their midst. I don't think we comprehend what that meant. God was dwelling in the midst. He's right there. You could be in Jerusalem and you could point to the temple mount and, and God is right there. He is enthroned between the cherubs in the Holy of Holies. And that is part of their central identity until the ark is taken or disappears at the time of the uh, Babylonian captivity. So that just took us up to some introductory principles of corporate worship. And let me I'll just go through these real quickly. God defines worship. He defines how we worship and the conditions of worship. It's not based on what we think he would like. That's the mistake that that Cain made. God rejected his offering. He accepted Abel's because Abel did it according to standard. We see this is why God disciplined Uzzah in such, uh, such a way is because he violated uh, the principle of the way the ark was carried and when it stumbled, he treats the ark in a, in a profane or irreverent manner. So God defines worship it's determined not by how we feel, it's not subjective, but by our conformity to God's righteousness and his revelation, which means we need to think a lot about who God is, his character, his righteousness, his justice. 
we need to think about what he has revealed and we need to know that's how I, David went back to the scriptures. Uh, worship means in its basic core meaning of the terms, it means to bow down to God. So thus it signifies at, at sort of a core meaning this idea of submission to God's will because he is God. It is a recognition of his authority, of his sovereignty, uh, of what he has done uh, in our lives. And then fourth, worship has order and it has structure because God is a God of order and structure according to 1 Corinthians 14.33. Now all four of those were violated. All four of those principles are violated by the way David had the ark taken into Jerusalem uh, the first time. So he has to rethink based on Scripture, which is exactly what we do. We can't worship according to our ideas. We need to go back to Scripture. Now, what's interesting is where does Scripture tell you how to worship? Where does Scripture tell you this is what you should do on Sunday morning? Does it even tell you you should do it on Sunday morning? Does it say, oh, you should do this for an hour? An hour and a half, you're getting a little long. Two hours, three hours, or wait a minute, an hour or two hours is too shallow. You need to spend more time. Where does it say that? Where does it say you need to um, you need to sing two hymns or three hymns, or you need to come in and and uh, there's a procession of those who are involved in leading the service. There's a procession as they come down forward. Did you notice that the if you saw the Barbara Bush? Uh, service the other day you have uh, the candle bearers coming in and they're carrying a cross and they have various uh, things that they do and they wear certain robes and all that where do you find that in scripture where do you find that it's the right thing to do in scripture where do you find that it's the wrong thing to do in scripture see scripture doesn't tell us this those kinds of specifics in the new testament but the, the scripture does give us specific a specific framework within which we should design a worship service. And I think part of the reason that God does it that way is because as you go from culture to culture, people are going to uh, apply those in slightly different ways, some in ways that perhaps are not appropriate at all, some in ways that, that are legalistic, uh, some in ways that are are more grace oriented uh, some are going to be impacted by education factors income economic factors things of that nature so what we need to do is determine what does the bible teach about worship what are the elements so we'll we're going to go through that so this may take us more than a week or two to go through the whole thing I pointed out last time that the English word worship comes from an old English word worthship, which means worthiness or to acknowledge worth. And I pointed this out that this is essentially this core idea that because God is God, he is to be obeyed, he is to be revered, he is to be uh, adored because of his intrinsic worth, okay, because he is the creator God of the universe and he has redeemed us. But that, is, that, that sort of gets at some of the core ideas, but there's a lot more to it than that. And I pointed out just definitions. And a lot of this, I, I, I did this today. I was going through a lot of dictionaries, looking at the meaning of words. And what we see, well, well, we'll get there in just a minute, is that there's a lot of, uh, let's just say, circular, circular definitions. So how do we define worship? In... Um, Walter Elwell's got a dictionary of theology <clears throat> that's quite popular among theologians in seminaries. And he says in there, as he's defining worship, he says, Webster's Dictionary for the precise meaning of worship, and then he has in parenthesis synonyms, adore, idolize, esteem worthy, reverence, homage. He said, yet truly defining worship proves more difficult because it is both an attitude and an act. Okay, I think he makes a good point there. And when you read through a lot of literature, and I went through Bible dictionary after Bible dictionary and theologies and everything, looking at, at <clears throat> definitions to see that there are these, these differences. 
you have Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says it's an expression of reverence and adoration of God. This involves, and went on to say this, one aspect of this would involve meditation, that is thinking about the Word of God. So it's a recognition that, that part of worship would involve the study of God's Word. Now, it uses these two words, reverence and adoration. What does it mean to have reverence for God? Have you thought about that? You're going to come into church on Sunday morning and you're going to revere God. You're going to respect Him. See, that's the idea of reverence. You look it up in the uh, Concise Oxford English Dictionary, it means to show respect for God. The other word, uh, adoration, to adore means to worship or venerate. What does venerate mean? It means to show respect. You get the idea that you define word A with word B, you define B with C, you define C with A. You're going in a circle. Because defining these words is very difficult. It's it's somewhat abstract. But we understand that certain certain elements uh, should be there and that we should be thinking through just what it means when we say I'm going to worship and I'm going to be go to the worship service on uh, on, on Sunday morning. In Elwell's dictionary, he goes on to say, both the Old and New Testaments admit the possibility of false worship, usually associated with idolatrous cults and gross misconduct. For example, the Canaanites practiced ritual prostitution and infant sacrifice under the guise of worship to gods like Moloch and Baal. Now, we think that's not a problem anymore, but we would be wrong. There is an Episcopal church in San Francisco that has a Buddha at the front of the church. There are many uh, liberal Protestant churches that also have now included prayer rugs in their Muslim prayer rugs in their churches so Muslims can come and feel comfortable worshiping at their church. When I was in seminary, there was a bit of a scandal that took place over at uh, Perkins School of Theology at SMU. This was in the late 80s. That they were having a, um, a chapel week, and it was they would do this every year, and they would give it to a group of students in the seminary, and they were in charge of, of chapel for the week. And these students coming from their liberal background, decided, well, we're, we're going to worship the divine. Part of the theme this, that year was on uh, women's, women in ministry. And so they brought in an idol of, of Artemis of the Ephesians, the many-breasted goddess, right out of you know, Acts 19. And they brought, and, and, and they were almost, the seminary almost got kicked out of the Methodist denomination over that, but they finally decided not to do it. But it created quite a little scandal there. Uh, so idolatry, and you can go to almost any major city in this country, and you can go places, and you can buy various cultic idols that you would think are no longer uh, no longer to be influenced or around. You, you look at the worship of Allah, who is a uh, not a physical idol, but it's idolatrous worship. It's worship of a false god. So uh, this is very much a problem that, that we still have in our world today, and it's becoming more and more so. There's more and more overt idolatry. There are the Wiccans and the various other groups that are uh, anti-Christian. So this is all part of what's going on in terms of, of false worship today. New Bible Dictionary, after citing the background for worship, says that it is, originally it had the idea, uh, it referred to the action of human beings in expressing homage to God because he is worthy of it. It covers such activities, now this gives us a little more information, it covers such activities as adoration, our praise to God, thanksgiving, prayers for all kinds, 
the offering of sacrifice and the making of vows. All of that would be included in, in the idea of worship in New Bible Dictionary. So how do we define worship? In the Pocket Dictionary of Theology, it's a little better. Pocket Dictionary of Theology says it's the act of adoring and praising God that, that is ascribing worth to God as the one who deserves homage and service. Now, if it stopped there, it'd be weak because worship is much more than praise. That's a problem that, we're getting, that we've gotten into in the last 30 years is you go to churches, some, many, many churches today, they have a pastor and they have a worship leader. And the worship leader is the song leader. And then there's the worship team, and that's just the musicians. But they are the ones who are doing worship. That's what that language communicates, that they're the ones who are involved in worship. But that has, that's very dangerous because then what do you do with communion? Isn't that worship? What do you do with baptism? Isn't that worship? What do you do with giving? Isn't that worship? What do you do with the sermon and the study of God's word? Isn't that worship? So there, it limits worship to one thing, so then all of a sudden everything else isn't worship, and so why is it important? And it eventually leads to where what is emphasized is, and this is what's happened in many churches, is, is the singing. And actually the worship leader of the church is the pastor because he's the one who's overseeing the entire service and directing it, and he's the one who brings the word of God uh, to the people so that they know what God's will is. So this, de this definition does go on. It says the church, which is to be a worshiping community, expresses its worship corporately and publicly, and puts in parentheses liturgically, through prayer, through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, through the reading and exposition of Scripture, through observance of the sacraments, and through individual and corporate living and holiness and service. So that's a much more robust definition. It involves the idea of the different elements. It doesn't talk about giving, unless it includes that in sacraments. It doesn't talk about giving, but it talks about prayer, corporate prayer, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, reading of Scripture, the exposition of Scripture, the observance of the sacraments. Uh, for Protestants, that's baptism and the Lord's table. And then individual and corporate living uh, in holiness and service. Let me see if I have another one here. I didn't realize these sl slides would be. So, now, there's a book that I found <coughs> helpful, and I'm going to mention it, and I also have to qualify it. It's by Alan Ross. Alan Ross wrote a book, came out several years ago, on worship called Recalling the Hope of Glory. Now, Al is going to be one of our uh, speakers next year at the, at the Chafer Conference, and he's not going to be getting into this topic. But I've known him since 1976 as a professor when I was at Dallas, and he's always, as long, many years as I've known him, that's over 40 years, he has always been very interested in what is worship? This man has thought profoundly and deeply. He's got his uh, PhD, his Doctor of Theology from Dallas. Then he went to Cambridge. When he was in Cambridge, he would go to uh, conservative Anglican churches where he basically became um, an Episcopal because he brought with to that tradition his rich understanding of all the creeds and all the liturgy and everything like that. And he and I had some conversations about this back when I was a student and, and also a pastor in the 80s. And he, um, he, he, what I like about reading his book, it's called Recalling the Hope of Glory. I don't always agree with where he's going, but he's thought more profoundly and deeply and biblically about this topic than just about anybody. He would be close to us in, in many of his ideas. He is not a fan of anything of the contemporary worship low church type order that's going on today. Uh, but he, he recognizes that, you know, we need to think about all of these issues biblically, and uh, that's what he does. Uh, he brings this out, and he, he's always thought uh, well about this. When I read books like this, you know, some people think if I mention a book, oh, that ought to be, a, even if I say it's a good book, 
when I say it's a good book, it means it creates good thoughts. It challenges my thinking. It helps me to understand things. I have commentaries that I read and theologians I read because of what they make me think, not because I agree with anything they say. Okay? That to me is a good book because it, it helps me think more clearly about what it is I'm, I'm thinking about and what I'm teaching. And that doesn't mean I, I hardly agree with anything that the guy says, but some commentaries are really, really good because they tell you all the different positions that, that, that are known to man about something. And in the process, they talk about the strengths and weaknesses of each one, and that helps me think through the issues without having to go read 30 books. So when I say it's, it's good, it's not probably for the same reason that you might think it's good. Uh, so I have found uh, Al, Alan to be a very profound thinker in, in many, many ways. Uh, he's got a, uh, one of the foremost education backgrounds. He came out of a German Baptist background. He grew up listening to his father preach in German in Canada. And then they moved to Southern California, and he went through kind of the Jesus hippie, you know, low church, very informal stuff in Southern California. And he's been in Bible churches. He's pastored Presbyterian churches. He's been in just about any kind of environment. So he also brings a, a lot of experience and understanding uh, to the topic. So it's really interesting to, to read him. And we would quibble with some of his theology, as I'm going to point out in just a minute. But he does... He's thought more thoroughly, I think, about this than anybody else I've read. That doesn't mean he's right. It just means he's, he brings more to the table. So this is how he defines worship. He says it's the celebration of being in covenant fellowship with the sovereign and holy triune God by means of. So it's basic idea of celebration. Now, what you're thinking is wrong. The word celebration has different meanings. What we normally think of as celebration is let's go have a party. Let's celebrate. We celebrated the Astros winning the World Series last year, right? That was a great time. I spent it celebrating with a lot of people out in the parking lot of uh, Academy waiting for them to open and buy T-shirts and everything. You know, it's a, it's a great fun time. That's not how we're using the term celebrate here, Okay. Uh, it's the celebration of being in, in covenant fellowship with the sovereign, holy, triune God by means of the reverent adoration and spontaneous praise of God's nature and works. The express commitment of trust and obedience to the covenant responsibilities and the memorial reenactment of entering into covenant through ritual acts. All with the context confident anticipation of the fulfillment of the covenant promises in glory. Okay, let's think about this a minute. He's got a lot there, but worship isn't something you can really just say, okay, here's a little bumper sticker definition. It's much more complex than that. In his opening line and several times through here, I thought I had a slide where I underlined all the terms, maybe not. He uses the word covenant. Now, I know Al's theology pretty well, and he's one of these guys who thinks that in some sense the new covenant began on the day of Pentecost. So he would see the church in a new covenant relationship with God. See, we don't. We don't agree with that. But that's not inherent to what he's trying to say here. I would change the terminology and say it's the celebration of being in an eternal fellowship with God. God has brought us into a union with him that will last for all eternity. That's just profound. We can't even get our, our arms around that. So let me go through this slide again. So... Another term that we need to look at is, is down in the third, third bullet point there, entering into covenant through ritual acts. Well, I would say that it's the memorial re reenactment of enjoying our fellowship 
and I'm not sure I would use the term ritual there, for people from our background, that doesn't communicate. We do have ritual, as I pointed out earlier. We have ritual such as we have the Lord's table. We have baptism on, on occasion. We have these, um, and, and what we do, even though we're a more informal type worship service, we do the same thing every week, and that is our form of ritual. But as we go through that and we focus on the Lord, we are uh, reenacting in our minds, remembering what has been accomplished for us in terms of salvation. And when you hear, you as a believer, hear me give the gospel, you reaffirm in your mind that you have believed that. That doesn't make you more saved or less saved. But the more I say it, the more you, 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 you get that vocabulary ingrained in your thinking so that when you try to explain the gospel, the words come to your mind because you've heard me say it so much. And that's part of it. That's part of, of worship. And then his last point, I think, has, has a great point. He says, all with the confident anticipation of the fulfillment of the covenant promises and glory. There is a past, present, and future aspect to his definition on worship. It is, we're celebrating the fact that in the past, we have trusted in Christ, and God has, for the church age believer, placed us in union with Christ. We are in union in an eternal fellowship and partnership. That's part of the meaning of the word koinonia with the eternal, infinite, holy God of the creator God of the universe. That blows, that should blow our mind every time we think about that. That's past, that's phase one. Phase two is part of the next part of it. We do it by means of reverent adoration and spontaneous praise of God. Now, spontaneous praise, unfortunately, gives the in, in many churches, that's all they do. There's no planning, there's no order, there's no organization. It's it just an overemphasis on spontaneity. But it's, it's reverent. It is respectful. That means there's order there. That, mean, that, that should tell us that whatever else we do in life, whatever we do in whenever we come together in any kind of group meetings, whether it's some kind of service club or community organization or sports events or going to the theater, whatever we do in those types of environments, that is, is and should be qualitatively different from coming into the presence of the eternal creator God of the universe on a Sunday morning. Now think about that. What we see in, in so many churches is that the attitude that takes place on Sunday morning in the local church isn't any different from going to some theatrical event, going to some entertainment event, going to some college classroom at the university. It loses the sense of focus on this God that the Bible tells us about. Now, that's a pretty profound concept, one we all have to think about a lot. I have to think about it a lot because we, we get into our little ruts that are very comfortable for us. But this is what this is focusing on, is that our worship of God is something that should have an impact on how we live. When we leave a worship service, we should be thinking a little bit differently about who we are and who God is than when we came. It should be elevating our focus in life to the eternal plane of God's character and God's plan of action. It should not be something where we leave and all of a sudden we're just like we were when we came and we're just, just another thing that we do and, and let's go to the ball game or go home and watch, or let's go eat. There's nothing wrong with doing those things. But worship is something that is 
much more reverent than that. So this isn't coming together to just have a good old boy time with Jesus and God, which is what happens a lot in informal churches. We just treat God. We have the hymn, Oh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, that emphasizes an important truth that Jesus has this, because he's a man, he has a compassion for us and an understanding we can't even fathom but he's the God who created everything. And I think it's something like 60% of American Christians don't believe in the full deity of Jesus. We've brought God down to our level instead of contemplating God in such a way that we're elevated in our understanding of who we are, who the creator is and what he has done to reach down and elevate the creature. So this is part of worship. It should challenge us when we worship, when we study the word, when we sing good hymns. It should challenge us to think about God in a more significant way. That's why I, I like to sing, you know, a lot of churches will only have, tw- you know, 12, 15 hymns. They sing the same things over and over again. I like to sing more and more over the course of time that I've been here. We've gone from initially about 15 hymns. Everybody should get familiar with those and then expand it and expand it. We probably, I would hope, I have accounted lately, but we should have 35, 40, 45, uh, press on to 60 or 70. There's so many great hymns. And we shouldn't limit ourselves to that which we've heard before because part of the purpose for a hymn is to reorient our focus onto God. And when we go to what happens in so many churches is that's not what the singing does. It is, it's emotional. It brings the focus back to who we are. It's all about us and not all about God. And that's one of the things we're going to see here is that for worship to be biblical worship, it's it's got to be all about God. Now, all of that just brings us back to where I stopped last time, is that when we think about worship, we think especially about music, there's two, there's two major mistakes that people make. One is we interpret what we read in the Scripture about worship and music in terms of what we've seen in our own experience. In other words, we've seen people sing a certain way, and we've seen, if you've ever been at a church, how many, I don't want to do a show of hands, but I really do, praise dancing. I'll never forget the first time I saw praise dancing. It's like, what in the world is that all about? If you haven't seen praise dancing, I mean, you're really missing out. You're just very sheltered. I mean, wow, that gets into a whole new thing. Stories I could tell, I won't. Um, so what if you've seen that and you come out of a church that does that, then when you read about David dancing before the Lord, you're taking your experience and you're reading that into what David did. That's not good. That is, that, that is what we call interpreting Scripture on the basis of our experience. That is always going to end you up on the wrong side of uh, biblical hermeneutics. So that's the first problem that uh, dangerous presupposition is that, that we, can, we can interpret that in terms of our background. And the other is that, that, and this relates to dancing, that this is ecstasy. And that term comes up quite a bit in literature as I read it. And this is a failure to understand the dynamic and the role of the Holy Spirit. Ecstasy expresses the modus operandi of the of the um, pagans and what they did and how they tried to stimulate God. It's it's what the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth were doing on Mount Carmel. They're trying to get Baal's attention, and they're dancing, and they're whirling around, and they're getting all worked up emotionally, and they're cutting themselves, and they're doing all of these things to try to get God's attention. And the contrast, we rarely think about what Elijah is doing there as as worship, 
But notice the simplicity of it. He comes at, he puts the wood down. He's going to show that God is truly God, so he just soaks it in water. And then he just steps back and he calls upon God to accept the offering. And it's immediately incinerated. And it just shows how false the worship is, but it shows a contrast in the methodology of the pagans and the methodology. There's no mysticism going on there. Uh, with, with, there's no ecstasy going on. There's no ecstatics with, with Elijah. So these are the presuppositions. And, and another part of the problem that you see today is in, uh, it's become very popular since the late 80s for churches to get involved in something called spiritual formation. And among Protestants, it's been given, you know, more of an acceptable definition, but this grew out of a return to Roman Catholic medieval mysticism. And you can't separate the root from the fruit. And and this got, uh, this is just bad. And it's in every major seminary. They have these spiritual formation groups and everybody sits around and they you know, they're supposed to confess their sins, but they never do because nobody's going to really get uh, and get open and tell about all of their dirty, really dirty laundry to other people, especially if they think that it might get them kicked out of seminary. It's superficial, but it's this idea that that's essential to spiritual growth. And those, those are, and it goes into a lot of churches today, but this is You'll, you'll find this, and you'd be amazed how many people uh, get caught up into this. And there have been some noted situations uh, where leaders like Francis Beckwith, who at the time that he was the president of the Evangelical Theological Society, converted back to Roman Catholicism, which he had uh, grown up with as a child. And at the same time, he was a professor at Baylor University, which is a Baptist school. This is just absurd, but there are a lot of instances in the last 30 or 40 years. When I went up to Connecticut, I was uh, looking at some different evangelical schools up there thinking that, well, I may go get my doctorate at one of them or finish my doctorate at one of them. And I went to, I looked at Gordon Conwell and I ran across an article at um, somewhere on, on the internet talking about the greatest problem that Gordon Conwell had faced the previous 20 years, which would be from, you know, 1980 to 2000 is that the that that like 14 15% of their student of their graduates had gone roman catholic what's going on here you have people like frankie schaefer who's the son of francis schaefer who went greek orthodox and then he went atheist and who knows what he is today uh, these are noted issues that are going on in evangelicalism what's happened I think my, and then you had two or three Dallas Seminary professors who went charismatic with the Wimber movement back in the mid-80s. I think it's because they're not walking with God. They've lost the whole concept of what it means to walk by means of the Spirit. And they've done different, especially the intellectuals, the academics, they have made Christianity very academic, and they've lost their walk with the Lord. And then they try to sort of recover this idea of godliness, but it's like what what Paul says is that they they talk about godliness, but they deny the power of it. And so then they start looking for experience. Now, once they start looking for experience, if you're an academic, you've got two directions. You can go Pentecostal, which is what a couple of those guys did from Dallas Seminary, or you go back to a ancient church tradition like Greek Orthodox or Roman Catholic that has it's mystical, but it has a high value of intellectual um, development. You have Aquinas and Augustine and Bonaventure, and you can challenge your mind and your intellect at the same time, and so you don't have to lower yourself to those Pentecostals, and um, you, can, you can maintain a, an intellectual uh, respectability. So this is a kind of thing, it's, it's a result of carnality. So, bottom line on this, I said last week, was nothing that we have read indicates that anything in David's structure is left unplanned, unrehearsed, or impromptu, extemporaneous, or spontaneous. And this takes us right back to 
introductory comments on worship and music, which is where I ended last time, but I wanted to go back and talk about this idea of what is worship and get you, I hope, to think about that and to be thinking about what that means for you when you come to church at any time. What is your mental attitude supposed to be? Preparation, we often go through time of silent prayer and confession, but that's not when you sh- you and I should start preparing for worship on Sunday morning. You know, it's we've lost this in our modern families, but if you go back a hundred years, on Sunday morning, the family would gather together and eat breakfast together, and the father would read scripture together, and they would know what was going to happen at church that day, and they would set the stage at that point. And then when they came home later in the afternoon, whatever else they did on on a Sunday, which was usually, uh, in many cases, what you didn't work. Nobody worked. You didn't you might have some chores on a farm to do, but it was treated as a special day, and they would talk about what the message was. And there would be that Sunday was a set apart day because that was the Lord's day. That was a day to focus attention. It's not the Lord's day because we're going to give him an hour and a half out of the morning. It became a focal point for the whole day. But that's really hard to do in today's world with, you know, you've got your smartphones and you've got your tablets and computers and music and all the different activities and everything to just stop it all and and, and focus and bring God back as a central focus on what is going on on Sunday morning. So just some things to that all of us need to be challenged to think about a little bit. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study, to reflect, to think about what it means to genuinely worship you in what we do when we come to church, when we sing, when we are involved in communion and other aspects of our corporate worship. Help us to think about these things and to reflect upon what the Scripture teaches that we may appropriately and truly honor and reverence you in our services. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.